Welcome to the Wiser Wealth Management Roundtable, where we believe the best financial advice is always free of all conflicts of interest. I'm Brad Lyons, and with me is Matthews Barnett. Casey Smith is away today, so we'll be taking this on our own. If you like what you hear today on this podcast, please subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Matthews, how are you today? Doing well. How's it going? Doing very well, thank you. I think we have a very interesting topic, and I think our listeners will enjoy it. Throughout my career in investing, I've always heard people say the market's too high or the market's too low. Investors are fearful of getting in when the market's low, which ironically may be the best time that investors shouldn't get into the market. Conversely, I've heard investors say the market's too high and are concerned about getting into the market. I'm sure you've heard several of the those same sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's speculation, but that's probably one of the, the biggest things we hear, both when the market's, like you said, doing really well or struggling a little bit. Everybody's kind of pessimistic or they have this really good outlook. So uh, that's kind of where the, the saying comes from is uh, it's about time in the market, not timing the market. So that's kind of the big point of what we're going to discuss today. Exactly. You know, it, it also seems to me that, you know, investors that have a specific objective in mind when they're investing seem to do better in the ups and downs of the marketplace. Whereas uh, investors who are simply putting money in on a speculative basis seem to have a little bit more problem with this sort of ups and downs in the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, investment management is a big part of financial planning, but it's less about trying to hit these goals and these benchmarks and really deciding what your goals are and what's the point of these assets to reach those goals. And then you can kind of back into it from there, less trying to really focus on exactly what type of returns you have to have. Exactly. It's the required rate of return that we calculate here to help our investors understand what their money is expecting to do for them over a long period of time based upon their unique investment objectives and personal goals. And by utilizing a required rate of return, we can build a portfolio that's designed to achieve that rate of return with a high probability of success. That's right. And there's a lot of noise out there you see with people really, like we said, speculating and having these forward-looking outlooks. Uh, but I thought this was an interesting quote by Warren Buffett that he uh, wrote to his uh, shareholders in his annual letter Uh, Back in 1989, uh, he said, we do not have, never have had, and never will have an opinion about where the stock market, interest rates, or business activity will be a year from now. So uh, pretty interesting coming from one of the the best and and brightest uh, Oracle in Omaha there about his uh, assumptions forward looking. You know, and as he's indicating there, he has no idea what the future is going to bring in the near term. And yet he invested anyway. (laughs) That's right. It seems to have worked out pretty well for him. Exactly. So as we say, you know, there's no crystal ball there, but, you know, you kind of commit to your philosophies there and um, it's worked out for him. You know, there's been a number of studies done over a number of years where the with data that you can look back and you can kind of see how well investors would have done had they stayed in the market or if they had missed a day or two in the market or missed significant number of days in the market. I'm looking at one here that suggests that if a an investor had stayed in the market from January 1, 2001 to December 31, 2020, so over a 20-year period, stayed in the market, which that means you know, like invested in something like the S&P 500 index and had all dividends reinvested, they would have a 7.47% return over the, that period of time. That's an annualized return, so it's year over year over year. If they had missed just 10 days in the market, those 10 days having been the best 10 days in the market, they would have had a 3.35% return. So that's like almost a what, 400 basis points or 
four full percentage points. Yeah. But on a on a real return basis, on a an accumulated basis, the investor who stayed in the market had they put in ten thousand dollars, they'd have had forty two thousand dollars two hundred and thirty one. Had they missed the ten best days in the market by trying to time the market and thereby missing the ten best days, their ten thousand dollars would have turned into nineteen thousand three hundred and forty seven. So less than half their money that they would have had had they stayed in the market and actually achieve those returns over those 10 best days. That's pretty significant. It kind of goes back to the point we hear a lot too, where people you know, say, you know, I think the market's pretty high right now. I'd, I'd like to go to cash or, you know, get out, maybe take some, a uh, little bit off the table. Well, it kind of comes back to the conversation of, okay, well, you, if you get out of the market, you know, when's the best time to get back in? Are you actually going to make yourself get back in when it starts to bottom out? Or are you going to get back into the market once it starts to improve? And at that point, you missed out on that recovery had you just stayed invested. So it's always going to be a game whether you hit it at the right time. And, and over the long haul, it's just not going to happen. You know, timing the market or timing any securities and market timing is such a difficult thing because you not only have to be right once, you have to be right twice. Right. Once to get out, once to get back in in order to to get those gains. And it's just a very difficult thing because you're also dealing with human behavior. And we know, and there's been a lot of research done on this, that human behavior is such that it's much more difficult for us to uh, accept a bad outcome than it is for us to accept a good outcome. There's some research done on this. And when you apply this to investing, a bad outcome is a loss in value versus a good outcome being an increase in value. And it's somewhere in the neighborhood of twice as bad feelings of losing money or losing value in the market than there is you know, joy of actually gaining money in the marketplace. So that hesitancy of a possibility of a bad outcome makes it very difficult for people to to make that second decision to get back into the market quite often. That's right. And one of the biggest things is behavioral finance and investing. Obviously, asset allocation, but uh, your behaviors are really the main things that are going to drive your returns. You know, so it's like a it's like a, the, the three-legged stool, for example, where you have these three co-equal determinants of investors' uh, return success. Understanding our risk tolerances is a very important thing in, in investing because understanding our risk tolerance allows us to create a portfolio based upon our ability to withstand the ups and downs in the marketplace. And the second leg would be, you know, a proper asset allocation. I think you used that term a little bit ago, which creates a, an expected return based upon the amount of risk that you're willing to take. And then, as you've also mentioned, Matthews, is managing your behavior as an investor. And those three things really have the, a huge determinant factor of whether or not you're going to be successful in meeting your investment goals and objectives. And that's, that's right. And the, and the first two actually don't matter if your behaviors aren't. Aren't, aren't good. So that's kind of why, unfortunately, the, the hardest thing to control is your emotions, but it's probably the most important. It doesn't matter how well you're allocated or you're planning. If you're getting in and out of the market or making bad decisions, uh, it's going to completely derail your uh, investments. Absolutely. Now, so the question, you know, becomes, you know, is the market too high right now, Matthews? Is it too high for investors to take money and invest it into the broad marketplace and properly allocated based upon their risk tolerance and achieve their return goals over a long period of time? That's really the question that investors are asking themselves and a question that internally we we work with and, and try to understand as well because we're investing money on behalf of our clients in order to achieve their goals and objectives. Yeah, I think is it too high goes back to, you know, what are you comparing it to? Historically, we're at actually close to all-time highs, but, uh, you know, what is too high and what would that really clarify that? I think you had some data on kind of historically on some things you could look at. 
Well, one of the things that we look at investment professionals utilize is something called the Schiller S&P 500 PE ratio or the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, which was developed by Robert Schiller. And he actually won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2013 for his work. This is a price to earnings ratio that is commonly seen on television and, and other broadcasts where they're talking about the price of stocks relative to the earnings of stocks and companies. The only difference here is that instead of taking the current earnings, they're taking the, la the average of the last 10 years or 40 quarters of earnings to kind of smooth out the earnings cycles that companies go through on, on, a, on, a, on a basis. By utilizing this and comparing it to the past Schiller price earnings ratios, yeah, we can take and, and see whether or not we're relatively high or relatively low. And right now we're at a number 37. 37 as a number means that on average, an investor over the past 10 years has paid $37 in a stock price to receive $1 worth of earnings from that company or that those underlying securities. Now, is that high or is that low? It has to be taken into perspective into you know, historical measures. There are times it's been higher and there's times that it's been lower. So right now we're in time that it's in a, in a high range, but it's not the highest that it's ever been. Looking at this, we can kind of get an idea whether or not the future expectation of investments is high or low. That's really the basis of use for the Schiller P.E. ratio. It in itself is a predictor of future returns based upon whether or not the ratio is high now relative to historical periods or low now relative to historical periods and what the expected return is based upon the ratio now. So right now uh, the, the ratio is in the high range. That means that the expectations for returns from the market is lower than historical averages. When the Schiller ratio is low relative to historical periods, future expectations for market returns is higher than historical norm. When we do our calculations for portfolios and try and build these portfolios for our clients to achieve an expected return, we take into consideration something called long-term capital markets. And those long-term capital market expectations are built into our portfolio's expected returns. And then from there, we actually look at a more conservative ratio in taking in expected returns that there are going to be periods of ups and periods of downs. Can you share with us a little bit about how our future expectations in our portfolios are, are reviewed and, and, and calculated and used in our financial planning software? Uh, yes. Yeah, so it goes back to kind of, uh, the like we mentioned, the asset classes. We're usually looking at various capital market assumptions in the future based on our allocations. And then it comes up with a uh, expected return within our financial plan in order to reach those goals. Usually we're trying to be a little more conservative in those assumptions than uh, you would actually see in our portfolios. Brad, you mentioned kind of, let's go back to the Schiller ratio there. Uh, I heard something on the radio not too long ago where somebody said the Schiller index is actually very high. So you shouldn't be investing in market right now. It's not a good time and that you should invest in commercial real estate. We talked about this and you just talked about it, we talked about it in the past. It's not really a predictor of if we're too high, it's more forward-looking assumptions. We've talked about commercial real estate is a good diversifier away from equities. Uh, going back to the behavior side of things, if you're gonna invest long-term in real estate, there's a certain holding period over the long-term that you'd have to hold it and you're not just gonna be able to liquidate it. So it's not something that you're able to look at every day and really get in and out of the market like you would. Yeah, real estate in general is uh, well known for its long-term returns. It's also known for having very high transaction costs, which eat away at your returns. 
and the illiquidity factor. Real estate is part of our portfolios, is part of most uh, broadly diversified portfolios, but it's not uh, a something that you look for in the short term to get in and out. I mean, there were periods in our not too distant past where we looked at house flipping, where people would buy a house, fix it up, and flip it, it was called. But even there, and, you know, those transaction costs, they were very high, and they still remain high. And it's something that we generally, you know, don't look at for a, a quick hit for our, our clients' portfolios. That's right. And it's tough to, we said there's no crystal ball. It's tough to decide over the short term exactly how uh, the market would perform. Uh, you mentioned on average, you know, it's about a 7% plus historically with the S&P 500. If you look back uh, over, uh, actually over the last 90 so years uh, in the S&P, during one year periods, the market's up over 73% of the time. During three year periods, about 83%. Five year periods, 87. 10 year periods, 94. And then over 20 year periods, it's up uh, over 100% of the time. So that goes back to the point of when you're investing in the stock market, it's long term. Uh, and over the long term, the markets are actually up, but you never know exactly what they could be over the short term. You know, uh, you know those averages, if I was a baseball player, I'd be thrilled with them. Right. Or a, a weatherman, you know, predicting the weather and having those averages. So why wouldn't people be just as happy with them as investors? I mean, even over the three and five year period, which is relatively short periods of time, those averages on up years is very high. In building the portfolios, asset allocation is such a very important thing. And it's one of the, 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 the legs of our of our three-legged stool, because utilizing broadly diversified asset classes is a great predictor on what returns you can expect to get. Actually selecting individual securities, overweighting or underweighting you know, sectors is a much smaller portion of a person's overall return in their portfolio. You know, there's been quite a bit of research done in this area as well. Back in the 80s, a gentleman by the name of Gary Brinson did studies on pension funds, which are long-term in nature, and found that the allocation that the investment managers had chosen actually had a 90% higher or higher correlation to the actual return that they got, rather than the selection of individual securities in the portfolio driving the returns. Having a proper asset allocation one that's based upon your risk tolerance, one that you can use to achieve your goals and allow the markets to you know, be the predictor of, and the drivers of the returns. And given what we've, you've just shared with us on the percentages, you know, I think there's a very high probability that a properly constructed portfolio can achieve the objectives that most people have. Over the long term. Over the long term. Right. You know, and when we do our planning, you know, our financial planning for a person who's going to retire at age 65, we plan for 30 years. That's a very long time. That's right. And I think that's where people get in trouble when they're retirement planning. They think they're retired. They get a little too conservative. And over the long term, inflation, that become an issue. I saw this other stat that was going back to S&P 500 historically, that there's a 15 plus percent decline almost every four years. That's pretty significant, uh, pretty pretty often every four years or so. And the average decline, uh, the length of those declines is over 260 days. So it's a pretty significant amount of time that the market can be down and that the frequency of that. Um, so it's something that's going to happen and you're not going to be able to avoid. It's just about understanding that and investing for the long term. Well, that's why we use those long-term capital market assumptions because those assumptions take into consideration the ups and downs in the marketplace. And utilizing that in a portfolio construction technique allows us to set these asset allocations knowing that there are going to be times that the market is going to underperform and times that it's going to outperform its historical averages. And 
not worrying so much about the election result, last quarter's earnings, uh, whether or not there was a storm in the winter that caused a you know, shortage of uh, supply chain of, or anything that occurs like that. Because those things normally happen, they have happened, they're going to continue to happen. Investing for the long term is, is, is both art and science. And, and investor behavior is such a large part of that. That's something that we spend a lot of time with our clients on and that's counseling them on their on behaviors. And this is what our expectation is when we set a portfolio based on their goals. And that this is how we're going to look at the future. And even in the pandemic, in the midst of it, in March of well, 2020, and the market was down 35% on S&P 500. We had coached our clients and mostly that, you know, these things do happen, that we thought that it was going to be a V-shaped recovery. It was a V-shaped recovery from the stock market perspective. And our clients' behaviors you know, were such that, you know, we did not have anybody, you know, insisting on going to cash. We did not have to adjust any of our financial plans for our clients because the market had gone down and stayed down. The market went down but came back. 10, 15 years earlier, we saw a great financial crisis where banks had closed, where we saw a tremendous amount of disruption in the marketplace based upon the housing crisis and you know loans not being paid back. Prior to that, we saw a disruption in the marketplace due to an attack in New York City, which caused the, you know, the banks to shut down for three or four days, something that was unprecedented. We see these shocks to the economy you know, on a basic, regular basis from time to time, and we expect that they will continue to occur, but the resilience of our economy and our man, business managers um, it just never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, Americans are resilient, and uh, like you said, it's tough to actually uh, figure out when these things are going to happen and how it's actually going to affect not just the economy, but the stock market as well. You mentioned how we're planning for that in our plans. We're, we're taking the averages that we mentioned, very conservative long-term assumptions, but we also plan for those retirees that might retire into a down market, whether it be a 2008 or 2000, where there's bad timing is what we'll call it. And that's the biggest issue for uh, early retirees is the sequence of return risk. They retire into recession or, or down markets a few years in a row at the beginning of retirement and can eat into their returns uh, and some of their success in retirement. That's something that we, we plan for in our financial plans, looking not only at good and bad timing, historical averages, but also running what we call Monte Carlo analysis, where we're running a thousand scenarios of stock and bond returns. So we're looking for uh, you know, not just the good and bad times, but really the averages and, and planning for that within uh, our clients' financial plans. But it goes back to the point of over the long term, as long as you're not selling and you're controlling those behaviors, the financial plan really doesn't change that much based on the stock market returns. It changes more on your goals. The situation in your life changed or some of your goals. And that would really be when you needed to reevaluate your financial plan. But other than that, these short-term and even long-term situations with your investment returns even themselves out because it's something that you plan for. Given that you know our financial plans are long-term, given that our portfolios are expected to return you know, certain returns over the long-term, we just inherently think long-term here. Um, and, and one of the things that we you know, counsel our, our clients on is for them to think long-term as well. Sure, the market's going to go up, the market's going to go down. Um, there's history of that, uh, that we, have, we know that there's a number of periods of that things will, will go down. But the, the U.S. economy is, is, is expected to do well over the long haul. You know, what are our expected returns now? 
Well, where do we get these as well? We get these from a number of sources. Uh, we'll look at uh, uh, the return expectations that firms like J.P. Morgan may put out or firms like Vanguard may put out from time to time. And given their you know, long-term expected capital market assumptions, you know, we're looking at a, an equity return expectation. And again, these are for the next 10 or 15 years, knowing that there's some periods will be higher and some periods will be lower. But we're looking at you know, long-term returns for U.S. equities of being somewhere around 3 to 5 with a range of around 17%. What that means is that there's a couple things that that may be a little lower than than, in the past, and that would be indicative of what the Schiller, you know, uh, CAPE, you know, ratio is, is indicating. But we still build portfolios based upon those expected returns given, you know, the range, the the time periods that that are are presented to us by our clients' uh, lifespans and their, their objectives. With that, we can meet, we can still match a portfolio that is expected to achieve all those objectives. So, you know, expected returns are a little lower than, than they have been in the past, but we're also in a unique period where, and we've talked about this on prior podcasts, where the government has flooded their marketplace with money right now. And Money has flowed into equities and pushed prices up. We don't know exactly what the circumstance is going to be should the government begin to withdraw some of this money or, or as it gets kind of used you know, and, and, and dispersed throughout the rest of the economy. So we're, we're looking at this as a piece of information, but not the only piece of information. This is just one part of the aspect of financial investment management. It's important. We recognize it. We talk to clients about this and they ask us, do we think that the market's too high? Well, no. Most people come to us with money that had been invested either in their 401k or in IRAs or in trust accounts or other brokerage accounts. And what we may be doing is simply reconfiguring those investments to match their risk tolerance and create a new asset allocation for them. It's rare that we actually see people come to us with all cash that had not been in the market and now that they're, we may put into the market. We did a podcast on this, whether you should do a lump sum investment or a put it in over a period of time, which we use the term dollar cost averaging. Both are methods that are that can be used, you know, to to invest money over over the long term. It really depends on whether or not, you know, the objective is to, you know, start taking money in the near term or or in the longer term. Um, but strictly on a return basis, uh, we the research shows that it's just better to put money in as a lump sum basis and allow that money to go to work for you as soon as possible. In the market, that's the whole thing. Just being in the market, you know, those big. Losses in 2000, 2008, the only time you really realize them is if you sold. Sometimes you have people that did do that. It took a while to uh, regain it, but we mentioned it and don't want to keep overemphasizing this, but it really goes back to just simplicity of having an asset allocation that's based on your risk tolerance and your goals, investing for the long term, and then learning to control those behaviors of not trying to time the market, getting in and out, staying invested, and really focusing on uh, the important things in your life with the goals, not so much going on short term or what you see with all the noise on CNBC or Fox News or anything like that. I don't think it could be said any better than that, Matthews. I really don't. I want to thank our listeners for listening today. Again, if you like what you heard and you want to hear more about the Wiser Wealth Management Roundtable, please subscribe where you listen to your podcasts. Thank, thank you, Matthews. Thank you. Enjoyed it.